Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, English comedian and comedy writer Dave Cohen. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hooksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. The Ministry for the Future. I recently read Kim Stanley Robinson's novel of climate science fiction, The Ministry for the Future, which begins with a massive environmental catastrophe due to human-induced climate change. We're doomed! Doomed! As the plot unfolds, Robinson espouses a United Nations-backed Ministry for the Future, which would advance a variety of policies with an eye on how they would affect future generations. A perspective we've been sorely lacking for years. There are various ideas in Robinson's book that I found jarring. Geoengineering. Refreezing the water under Antarctica. You're as cold as ice! and seeding the atmosphere on a massive scale to slow heat waves. Yet it is hard to dispute the urgency of the need for a ministry of the future. Our planetary problems are getting very bad very quickly. Well, that was fast. Um, yeah, that's kind of my thing. No, but I mean, that was like really fast. It turns out that Robinson is not the first to adopt such a position on prioritizing the future. The late novelist and social critic Kurt Vonnegut Hi, I'm Kurt Vonnegut was doing that back in 2007 with his Secretary of the Future idea. Listen to Marketplace's David Brancaccio explain. How does this country get serious about long-term opportunities and threats, the ones that don't fit into a single federal budget or a single election cycle? Listen to what the late writer and social critic Kurt Vonnegut once said to me on national TV. Look, I'll tell you, it's one thing that no cabinet has ever had is a secretary of the future. And there are no plans at all for my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It was Vonnegut's last in-depth broadcast interview, and since then that idea of his has bounced around the Internet, never quite developing into a fully-fledged meme. We have a secretary of commerce, of labor, of defense. Why not a secretary of the future to help politicians think harder about how today's actions might play out in 10, 20, 50 years? When I was a kid, I was fascinated by the future and by these sort of science fiction speculations. 
I remember being completely absorbed by H.G. Wells' The Time Machine when I read it as a middle schooler. Of course, Wells ended up imagining a rather horrific future where the small, guileless, surface-dwelling Eloy were raised for and then eaten by the brutish, subsurface-dwelling Morlocks. The 1961 movie with Rod Taylor scared the heck out of me. American society was fascinated by the future in the 1950s when Disneyland opened in Anaheim. Disneyland, Southern California's $17 million playground dedicated to children, both young and old, opened its gates to the public today. In 1955, its Tomorrowland was supposed to represent the future of that distant year of 1986. Tomorrowland showpiece was a simulated ride to the moon. This was the stuff that thrilled eight-year-old boys in 1960. Naturally, there would be robots in the future. We loved Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet. Welcome to Altair 4, gentlemen. I am to transport you to the residence. We were scared to death by the power of Gort from the day the Earth stood still. and laughed out loud at the absurdity of the wacky robot from Lost in Space. Danger, Will Robinson! Danger! No, Will Robinson! Danger! In fact, these days, I am constantly disappointed that robotic characters from my youth still haven't really materialized yet. The Roomba is no substitute for Gort. But where are the flying cars? I was promised flying cars. I don't see any flying cars. Why? Why? A lot of the science fiction of our childhoods was filled with positive and imaginative ideas. There would be self-driving cars. Teslas are still struggling to achieve this. <laughs> Automatic stores. Amazon is rather like this. You have one new notification from Amazon Pay. A shipment is scheduled to arrive by August 9th. And all kinds of products were predicted to be made from corn. Agricultural subsidies have certainly brought this about. Uh, that has high fructose corn syrup in it. Mommy! Can I have some more juicy drinks? It all seemed to come together on 1962's The Jetsons, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon with a fabulous theme song. George and Jane Jetson live in Orbit City with their teenage daughter Judy and their younger son Elroy. They have a robot cleaning lady named Rosie. George commutes to his job at Spacely Space Sprockets for one hour per day, two days per week, complaining incessantly of his exhausting hard labor. Apparently, whining has not yet disappeared in the 23rd century. Jane, his wife! There was the Star Trek TV series, which premiered in September 1966 and introduced the communicator, foreshadowing what we now know as our smartphone. 
It was inconceivable to us then, even after we saw Captain Kirk ordering Scotty to beam him up. Scotty, beam us up fast. How could this ever be possible? Yet there were lots of utopian ideas coming from Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, which first aired when I was a freshman in high school. It showed the possibility of a reasonable, humanistic, interracial, and interplanetary future. There have been multiple Star Trek spin-offs since the original, all equally committed to a just and equitable future for all beings from all planets. Thank you, Gene Roddenberry. Nevertheless, as famous sci-fi writer Arthur C. Clarke once said, The future isn't what it used to be. Many of our current futuristic ideas are coming from ridiculously rich and self-absorbed billionaires who seem to want to monopolize space travel for themselves. At any cost, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos have all launched their own spaceships into the outer atmosphere. Apparently, Musk and Bezos are thinking of colonizing Mars. It might be nice if they were willing to share some of their enormous wealth with their fellow Earthlings through the taxes that the rest of us pay. Tech giants from PayPal and Google are also throwing millions into projects to beat the aging process. These include neural implants and prosthetic limbs and engineering microscopic nanobots that can fix your body from the inside out. Scientists are working to reprogram the DNA you were born with and exploring ways to digitize your brain so your mind can live long after your body expires. There are projects underway to devise a two-way brain-computer interface that will allow computers to read the electrical signals of the human brain and transmit signals back. As the futurist Yuval Harari speculates in his book, Sapiens. What if computer programmers could create an entirely new digital mind, composed of computer code, complete with consciousness and memory? If you ran the program on your computer, would it be a person? If you deleted it, would you be charged with murder? These tech billionaires want to extend their lifespans beyond what is possible with current medical practices. They talk of death being a solvable problem and of living to be 150 years old and even longer. Don't they know we have a population problem on this planet? Too many people. The human population of Earth numbers over 7.9 billion and is headed for over 9 billion by 2050, potentially leveling off around 11 billion by the year 2100. We are finally seeing population growth begin to slow down. What would happen if the world had to support a significant number of 150-year-olds? What would happen to healthcare, already reeling under baby boomer numbers? What would happen to bingo games? G56. What would happen to Florida? Has anybody thought this through? As George Carlin used to say, Cloud 9 gets all the publicity, but Cloud 8 is actually cheaper and less crowded and has a better view. So let's be sensible and consider where we are headed. We Earthlings need to learn to live at peace with our planet. 100,000 years ago, Homo sapiens was still an insignificant animal, minding its own business in a corner of Africa. In the following millennia, it has become master of the planet and a terror to the ecosystem. 
It has been suggested that if everyone on the planet consumed as much as the average U.S. citizen in terms of carbon footprint, we'd need four Earths to sustain them. With that in mind, scientists and futurists at Project Drawdown have been working on a variety of ideas and scenarios to build a sustainable future. Unlike the future conceived by greedy billionaires, it's concerned with all of humanity rather than just the wealthy few. All for one! And one for all! Project Drawdown talks about practical notions like major green, public works, infrastructure projects, with retrofits of buildings meant to make them sustainable that would employ thousands of people in the process. Drawdown pushes a full spectrum of alternative energy with new notions of microgrids based on wind and solar farms. By 2050, renewable energy generation of 80% could be a global reality. In many grids around the world, renewable energy production is already reaching a 20-40% to share, including variable renewables. In the United States, the wind energy potential of just three states, Kansas, North Dakota, and Texas, would be sufficient to meet electricity demand from coast to coast. Wind farms have small footprints, typically using no more than 1% of the land they sit on. So grazing, farming, recreation, or conservation can happen simultaneously with power generation. Project Drawdown maintains we could reclaim our forests by following Brazil's lead in the pre-Jair Bolsonaro days between 2004 and 2016, as that country aggressively pursued a multi-pronged strategy, and forest reclamation cut tree losses by 80%. We could create new forests where formerly there were none, with a policy of afforestation in areas that have been treeless for at least 50 years. Degraded pasture and agricultural lands and lands corrupted from uses like mining are ripe for strategic planting of trees and perennial biomass. One of the dominant storylines of the 19th and 20th centuries was the vast loss of forest land. Its restoration and rewilding could be a major success story of the 21st century. A ministry for the future would help us think outside the box, but well within the scientific realities and limits of our Earth's atmosphere. We must consider our planet from the beginning of every new idea. If we carry on at our present rate, humanity's impact on the planet will be comparable to that of the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs. We can change this if the next generations make peace with Mother Earth. There is a need for a ministry of the future as we begin pushing into a sustainability revolution following upon the agricultural, industrial, and digital revolutions of human history. A ministry of the future could prioritize community over greed and sharing over materialism. Earthlings could take care of their home and reject false choices between the economy and our planet. As environmentalist Guy McPherson has said, If you really think the economy is more important than the environment, try holding your breath while you count your money. Concepts of the future need to recognize the fact we only have one planet and it's a damn good one. One way to do this would be to consider a planetary ministry for the future.
Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. My name is... My name is... My name is Charles II. I love the people and the people love me so much that they restored the English monarchy. I'm part Scottish, French, Italian, a little bit Dane, but 100% party animal. Champagne! Spaniels I adored, named after me too. Like me, they were fun with the natty hairdo. Is today my birthday? I can't recall. Let's have a party anyway, because I love a mask. All hail the king of bling. Let's sing. Bells ring. Ding, ding. I'm the king who brought back Partying. King Charles, my daddy, lost his throne and kings were banned. They chopped off his head, then Ollie Cromwell ruled the land. Old Ollie wasn't jolly, he was glum and he was proud. Would be miserable as sin, only seeing not allowed. When Ollie died, the people said, Charlie, me hearty. Get rid of his dull laws, come back, with rather party. This action's what they called the monarchy restoration. Which naturally was followed by a huge celebration. The king of England. No sin to sing. Okay. All say I'm the king who brought back partying. Great London fire was a whopper. In my reign, London City came a cropper. So this king did what was right and proper. For the fire proved I'm more than a bopper. I'm a fire stopper. Married Catherine Bracken, saw she was a love so true. There would never be another, well, maybe one or two. Lucy Walter, Nell Gwynn, Moll Davis, Barbara Villiers. You think that's bad, but her name's not as silly as... As king, I must admit I broke the wedding rules. But who cares when I brought back the crown jewels? I reinstated Christmas, make-up sport and even plays. I was the merry monarch, they were good old days. Hi, uh, that's uh, Charles II, King of Bling, you're listening to right now. Those lyrics were written by our guest, who's the fabulous Dave Cohen. Dave's a longtime friend and um, comedy writer. He was also, I met him when he was a comedian, performing regularly on the London Alternative Cabaret Circuit. David Cohen, great to have you on Snap Sessions. Douglas Nunn, it's a pleasure to be with you as well. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I, I will talk a little bit about our time together on the circuit here. But as I remember, you're from Leeds in the north of England. I suppose we could talk about your hard scrabble Dickensian <laughs> upbringing. But I'd rather have you tell the story of your childhood and family in Leeds and give us some, some talk about your beginnings up north. Yes, well, uh, I was uh, one of uh, 25 children born in a coal mine. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm pleased to say they have electricity now. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, actually, um, although I'm from Leeds, I, I'm from sort of quite a middle class background. But in fact, actually, uh, when I moved to London and became a comedian, uh, because I was from the north of England, everybody just assumed that I was from a working class background. That's everyone from London. But I, I came from, well, middle class. But funnily enough, I've uh, there's, there's sort of elements of this story are told in my, my first novel, actually, uh, which um, I've mentioned to you before, I think. But uh, it's called uh, Stand Up Barry Goldman. It tells the story of a teenager from Leeds who uh, becomes a comedian. Where do I get my ideas from? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> there's quite a lot of the, the story in there that basically I came from that background. But then um, my family I had a family business, which sort of went a little bit uh, awry, uh, as a lot of them did in the late 70s. And so I kind of ended up uh, back there a bit and, um, you know, kind of uh, scrabbling together a few pennies to kind of keep 
things going really with the family. But then I quit that and came to London, and the rest is well, not quite history. But uh, you, you, that's where you came in, I think. Actually. That's right. Well, did you go to university in London? I I don't remember your uh, schooling. Yeah, no, I went to uh, Bristol University, and that was actually. A very formative time. That was kind of around the time that punk happened in England, and punk was a kind of massive, massive thing in England and and in in my life really. And I, I think that kind of uh, the punk kind of ethos really uh, was the kind of the, how I how I sort of lived my life really. Not I didn't have spiky hair or wear a uh, leather jacket with an anarchy on the back, but I, I I always loved the idea of that you know kind of anyone anyone can do anything creatively, and I, I think that kind of um, that attitude came back with the internet really. So uh, I've I've always been a big fan of that kind of uh, approach to life. Is that when you started playing music? Because you play guitar. Was that when you started? Yeah, yeah. I did. I've always written silly songs, really, from quite a young age, about sort of 12. I started writing silly songs. And then I started performing. I performed in folk clubs in Leeds in my kind of teenage uh, years. And um, that was uh, <laughs> that was an education. But then uh, punk came along, and I was still the kind of long-haired, flared, trouser-wearing uh, late teen. But I started doing my comedy songs at punk gigs, and um, you know, people were so people were so shocked at the sight of this sort of long-haired hippie at their punk gigs that they um, they forgot to spit at me, which is what generally happened at punk gigs. So I got away. <laughs> I got away pretty well, really, uh, with that. It was a great starting point for years later uh, playing uh, stand-up comedy clubs in, in London, you know, having having yeah. done all these kind of punk gigs in Bristol. Well, yeah, I, I love Bristol. I think it's a lovely town. And I had um, uh, a friend, a good friend of mine uh, uh, was a professor at Bristol Poly, which I guess is there at the same uh, city, obviously, but a different yeah. school. I, 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 of course, also was fascinated by the punk era, and I think I'm a five or six years older than you, but I think it was, uh, you know, really musically, you know, back to the roots and all kind of stuff. But you ended up, uh, you know, the alternative cabaret circuit, We feel free to describe that a bit, uh, was going on in London and Environs by the uh, late 70s, early 80s, by the early 80s anyway. And uh, you started in uh, alternative comedy about 84. And we met you the next year in 85 when Tracy Burns and I came over. Talk about your early days on the circuit. You mentioned uh, doing kind of parody songs and so forth. Um, I'll mention one in a moment that I uh, <laughs> still remember. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I um, well, well, the whole alternative comedy thing started in sort of the late seventies, and I vaguely knew about it then. And I, I had a kind of false start then, and uh, so I kind of turned up at the very start and then left very quickly. But yeah, I came back in the um, sort of early nineteen eighty four. That the whole London circuit started. What had happened was there was a um, huge success for all the original alternative comedians, people like Alexi Sale and Rick Mail and uh, these people. And they all went off and were big TV stars. And suddenly there was it this- came on uh, the young ones. I just mentioned that. That's one of the shows which was fairly popular over here with a lot of those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, the young ones just changed everything for for everybody, really. But then, uh, so then there were the all these clubs had opened in London, and there weren't really enough people to play them. And I got lucky; I turned up in London at the time when there were more clubs than there were performers. So it, it was possible to be not very good, um, but to to perform regularly. And we learned we learned how to be good just by playing gigs and and. By the time you guys turned up, it was becoming a little bit more professional. And the Comedy Store, which was the kind of starting place in 1979, reopened uh, in, a, in 1985. And that, and, and that was the first time that it went from being this, this kind of slightly quirky alternative thing. And it started to become a bit more mainstream. And yeah, I was doing my comic songs and a few little poems and things. And, you know, it was quite, it was quite fun and leisurely and... I was with a group of people and we were all we were all getting better just just by doing the gigs the whole time and then more and more gigs came up. Well, you uh, in addition to doing sort of razzes on poets, I recall you're holding the side of your nose or your ear or something and then you would do all these kind of alternative poets which was very funny. You also did a very memorable song uh which is to, which I remember to this day and amuse my wife with still which is called Stan Byerman, which was done to the tune of Tammy Wynette's song, Stand By Your Man. And I wondered if you could just recite us maybe the opening uh, yeah. verse of that. Well, yeah, I'm not sure if it'll translate quite quite as well, but I, <laughs> uh, it was basically about this friend of mine, Stanley. Uh, not too exciting, but it's true. His surname happened to be Bayerman. I don't think that means much to you, but... Um, God, I can't remember it now, but uh, if I'm feeling down, all I need to do uh, is give him a call on, and um, everything's great. And it's Stan Bayer, man, and it's David Cohen calling. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, most of the time it got, a, a, it got a huge laugh, but very occasionally it got the, the most giant-sized groan <laughs> that it was possible to get at a comedy club. Yeah. Well, it was one of your many uh, song parodies. Your act, as I recall, uh, in addition to making fun of uh, sort of alternative poets and the like, you also sang parodies and you had stand up jokes. You had jokes and you were contrary to your wonderful self-deprecation. You were a very popular comic. Uh, and I remember, for example, uh, Ivor Dambina took you, Mark Thomas, Felix Dexter. And I can't remember if there was any somebody else in that group. Ivor, I guess. Yeah, up to Edinburgh. And it was a power packed show. We did a uh, tribute to Felix Dexter about a year ago on our show. And I went through and I found a lot of Felix's old stuff, which was great. And Mark Thomas has also been one of our interview subjects on the show. So anyway, I thought it was a very powerful grouping and um, it was really a fun era. And uh, it was great to be uh, along with you for that ride. Yeah, yeah, no, it was really good. And it was actually that that first show was uh, myself and Felix and uh, Phil Cornwall, who uh, is, a, is a brilliant impressionist. And we we did a show called Comic Abuse in Edinburgh, which was uh, they they just started doing this thing, Comic Relief, of uh, you know, kind of um, raising money. Uh, and the third one, you know, very very good, very well meaning. Of course, we uh, naughty teenagers came along with our rude name. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was a great time, and uh, you know, Felix was a really good friend, and it was uh, you know very, it was it was tra tragic, you know, died tragically young. 
But not only that, I would say I think genuinely did not do as well as he should have done. And I think that was, I, I, I wouldn't say that there was racism that stopped him from getting on, but there is just, there was a kind of institutional uh, racism in Britain and, and, and there always has been. And it's only now really breaking down. But, but Felix, I remember he made one of the, he made a TV pilot. I don't know if you ever saw it, Doug, but it was. Yeah, we uh, looked through some of that stuff uh, when uh, we were researching the Felix show. Go ahead. You know, I've got to say, I've seen hundreds of pilots and done hundreds of things over the years. It was one of the funniest shows that I've ever seen. And how that did not become a series, it was, it was a complete mystery uh, to me. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because, you know, Felix was a friend and I'm biased or whatever. But I think that he did suffer from, he was for quite a long time, really. Uh, there was him and Sheila Hyde, and basically they were the black comedians on the circuit. And I think also what happened was they had a sort of burden of responsibility almost. It's like they were just funny people, but they were like carrying the expectations of the black community as well. They weren't really appreciated for the standard that they were both brilliant performers. I worked with Sheila as well, actually. I did a play with Sheila. A um, couple of plays with her. They were. Um, they should have done better, really. But yeah, that show we did in Edinburgh was. Um, that was the first time that the Edinburgh Fringe, that a bunch of comedians had gone up and taken like a version of the London cabaret show to Edinburgh, like with a compare and three acts. But it, instead of it being a two-hour night, it was kind of crammed into an hour, and so it was really the best. You know, it really was the highlights of a two-hour show crammed into an hour. So, yeah, I love doing that show. It was a great show. Now, around um, 1986, um, you were one of the founding members of the Comedy Store we were just talking about, which is on Leicester Square, held maybe 300 people or so. In the audience, you were one of the founding members of the legendary Comedy Store Players. Uh, this is an improv group, which is still, are they still doing two times a week at the store? Sunday and yeah, Wednesday, yeah. I think it was. They're well, still going. It, yeah. And uh, so they've been uh, working for about 35 years uh, as a regular thing. Some tremendous players have come through this group. Tell us about the founding of the Comedy Store Players and being involved with that. Yeah, that was uh, quite amazing. What it, what happened was it was actually 1985. It was the year uh, the year before. And the year I was doing a show with uh, two comics in London, Paul Merton and mm -hmm. uh, Kit Hollerback from uh, San Francisco and had moved over to England kind of around the same time as you guys, I think. A little bit before, I think, yeah. Just a bit before, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And we had the show that was on at 7.30 at this venue that never, <laughs> no, back of beyond, and nobody really kind of came to it. But uh, the show that was on before us was Neil Malarkey and a guy called Mike Myers, who I don't oh, know. Oh, yes. Don't, I don't know if any of your listeners might have heard of him uh, at all. He was, I, I don't know what became of him. But um, <laughs> Mike and Neil were doing this double act. And so there was this, uh, every, um, every day for three weeks, there was this uh, crossover time. They finished their show at about 7, and we started at 7.30. So there was this kind of 10, 15 minutes where we were all five of us uh, were in the bar. And that was when and, and Mike and kit from san francisco and mike from canada of course and they both were explaining to us what improv was because neil and paul and myself improvisation as it was in england was really about drama and uh, trust exercises and all that stuff 
So they said, no, 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 it's comedy. It's really fun. You can make it really funny. Let's go back to London and do a show. So yeah, okay. So there was Paul, Kit, myself, Neil and Mike. And that was basically how Comedy Store Players started. And Neil has been doing it. Uh, and, and Paul, you know, they've been, I don't think Neil's missed missed the show really in, in wow. 35 years. And Paul, you know, he's become a big TV star in Britain. So he doesn't do all the shows, but he's he still does a lot. And um, so they're still going strong and they get, you know, the, like you say, they do two shows a week. They sell out every week. And it's very much the American style improv, but then put our Englishness on it. I did my sort of song stuff, which was based on just the kind of thing that I would do, which was a more kind of English version than the American. And then Paul was just amazing. He wasn't like an actor or anything, but he'd just sort of stand at the back and watch the scenes happen. And uh, we'd act our backsides off and we'd, you know, try and create imaginary tables and doors and chairs and things. And we'd, we'd try and make humour. And then Paul would just say something and it would just be hilarious and it would be so funny. We'd be able to say, oh, right, punchline, that's it. That's the end of that scene. Let's move on to the next one. And that's yeah. um, that was it was like a unique improv show. It was, so it was very structurally strongly American. You know, you guys had all that stuff, years of second city and, and, and San Francisco uh, improv and stuff. And that you had all that. And then there was this English bloke standing at the back, just waiting for his moment to make a really funny joke off the action that he'd watched. And so, yeah. and it was, a, it was a, you know, it was a really great evenings entertainment. Still is. And, you know, and still is. And uh, the the amazing thing is, for those who don't know, the Comedy Store, which was at that time at Leicester Square, and it's now closer to Piccadilly Circus, right? It still holds about 300. They come in, that's typically an 8 o'clock show and an an 11 o'clock show. And for the improv shows, they do them on Sunday and Wednesday. Paul Merton, who Dave's talking about, is a big star in a show, Have I Got News For You?, which Dave is one of the writers for. And so this has been a, a, a news commentary. Paul's been involved, two teams and so forth. And so it's quite a show. And um, Paul's also been very funny with that. They also have a great musician, Richard Vranch, who was a, a physicist from Cambridge, as I recall, Vranchy. Oh, right. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He, he did some uh, BBC sort of commentary on some science show a couple of years ago, as I recall. Hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, a terrific group and uh, a legendary. I think Dave's right to, to, to put it in that perspective. And of course, Mike Myers from Wayne's World, etc., has been was was one of the founders of that. He was in the group that Dave mentions M- Malarkey to Myers back then. They were yeah, yeah. contemporaries of us. We went to a meeting of double acts one time and Malarkey and Myers <laughs> were there. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this guy's going to take off. And sure enough, the next year I was right, Dave, I was right. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I, I think we all, uh, there was, there was a, a sense very much on our little London cabaret circuit, uh, that it was, there was no question of if it was always when, when would Mike take off? And it was a matter of time. We knew he'd go back to the States. And, and I think he got asked to be on Saturday night live pretty pretty soon after that really so uh yeah. but he did spend you know and he's he's got family in uh in england or had family and um we did yeah. gigs we did a lot of com- comedy gigs and we went uh i did a gig with malarkey mice up in uh, liverpool and um 
Mike went off. He had relatives there. He went to to visit them, and he was told, telling us all about it on the way back about sipping tea with his with his cousins and uncles and things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he's he's always had those sort of links uh, to Britain. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about some of the shows Dave's written for, but one of the sidelights is a band that you were in, which I loved very much. I was in Britain mostly between 85 and 90, but I came back in 95 and 96. And one point then, uh, it was a Jewish comedy night, and one of the bands, suddenly my good friend Dave Cohen is there in a band called Guns and Moses, and I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about Guns and Moses and your thundering uh, appearance among the Goyim, etc. Yeah, I mean that was some um, that that came about. Actually, it wasn't it wasn't my idea. I came up with the the, the name, but it was that the idea was another guy, a contemporary bars, and, and again someone who's come to the states and been quite successful, Jim Tavare. Jim was a big uh, star. He had this act with his double bass in england and, and, and i know he's been he came over did a lot of work uh he lives in la I, now i think yeah he yeah. lives in la mm-hmm. did he do as like america's got talent i think one of those i think shows. so yes yeah mm-hmm. and he became known and he's been the he's been a pretty pretty much a regular uh he had a he had a absolutely terrible terrible car accident about three or four years ago and it's amazing that he's still alive really he's he's sort of been reconstructed he had this idea he wanted to do. I have to give him all the credit. He doing some gigs in uh, Israel, I think, or something. Or he spent some time around Stamford Hill in London, where there were a lot of very rich Jews. And he sort of he sort of made the link that the kind of the, the outfits that the ultra orthodox Jews wore uh, in London and and in Israel and, and and in Brooklyn, parts of Brooklyn, were really quite sort of cool. Uh, rock star they look like sort of cool rock stars <laughs> and uh he said we should do a, like let's do a rock band and, he, and he, you know he had the he had the visuals in his head and he was always the one who was dressed the best for it and he had the sort of long coat and a sort of long wig and a hat and and his bass guitar and he just looked like a cross between ultra orthodox jew and a rock star and he was working at the time a lot with a guy, another guy who's become very, very big star in England, a guy called Al Murray, who is, uh, had this character uh, called the pub landlord that, that's, been, again, a massive hit in, in Britain. Years and years of live shows at the West End of London and things. But at the time, he was just like a, a, like a sort of day-to-day jobbing comedian like we were. But he's a fantastic drummer, really, really good drummer. So there was him and myself and Jim. And then they had this other mate who was a, like a proper, really good guitarist. So we were like a real band, but we, and we were all big fans of the old 70s heavy metal. We were all fans of, you know, like Led Zeppelin and, and Pink Floyd and all that sort of 60s, 70s progressive music, as it was called, and, and Hendrix and stuff as well. So we did, we just thought, let's do a, uh, let, let's do a kind of, well, rhythm and Jews kind of uh, band <laughs> and you know you must know this as well Doug but it's a, it is a, a known fact that every single uh, stand-up comedian however successful they become a stand-up comedian they are all wannabe rock stars and that's there's there's something about you know when you go on stage and you do jokes and audiences can talk to you and they can shout at you and stuff but when you're in a band and you've got an electric instrument and you're so loud <laughs> 
they can't heckle you and you look like a rock god and you feel like a rock god even though you know i'm dave and you know i don't i know this is a podcast but i i do have the sort of rock and roll face for radio um and <laughs> we were not the the prettiest <laughs> band but you know just being in a band at a comedy club it was just the most probably the most fun that i've i've had in in all the sort of years of performing comedy yeah it was a, it was a fun band it really was and i i'm glad you mentioned jim taveray every once in a while i hear from him so it's really nice that that you mention him too now you of course have had a significant performing career and we were good fortune to to hang out with you and to work with you a lot in those days but you've really made your living and major mark is a comedy writer and compared to a lot of the people i've performed one you you've probably had the longest comedy writing career I think, uh, at least according to what I was able to call your first big writing credits were with Spitting Image back in 85. It would be great to hear about how you got your start in comedy writing, and then we'll head off into some different shows and have a chance for you to uh, expound upon that. Yeah, well, in the 80s, uh, in in Britain, there was, before, before uh, stand-up comedy took off really the only way that you got into comedy uh, in any way uh, was through the BBC and uh, uh, particularly BBC radio and back in the 1980s and, and the 70s I think as well BBC radio became this was, was this kind of fantastic training ground for new writers new performers and in fact a lot of people who uh, have become very, very successful. Some of the biggest names in comedy started out at BBC Radio writing jokes. And I mean, for instance, say somebody like Richard Curtis, you know, who wrote um, For Weddington, A Funeral, Notting Hill, uh, lot, lots of other big, big uh, movies. And then uh, Armando Iannucci, who again has been, yeah. has made a, a career in in the states he makes a show is it avenue uh avenue five i think it's called the, yeah. the and also he did he did the last days of stalin i can't remember yeah, what yeah, the yeah. name of that one it's very funny very funny yeah movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that was that was it yeah so and yeah. he began as a radio four producer and a lot of these people who who began as radio four producers uh making radio shows churning them out really when using new people all the time and they went on to become big heads of TV and big, you know, really very sort of successful people. And so when I started out, I moved to London and I was just, like I was saying, starting out on the, on the cabaret uh, circuit doing those gigs, but also being asked to do radio stuff and turning up to write for radio shows. And once you got your first credits on radio, you know, producers would like you and get to know you. And again, this was a lucky thing at the same time that this whole cabaret thing was starting was the same time that Spitting Image uh, started. And so a lot of these producers, they knew there were these new writers and, you know, I wrote songs. And so they're always looking for, for comedy songs. 
um, and that's mostly what I was doing on Spitting Image was was uh, was was writing songs for it. So yeah, and that was just through the connections with the BBC. And the, uh, mm. it's sad now that because there's a sort of culture in Britain of that the BBC is a bad thing. You know, well, it, it's it's unbelievable because it's one of the most successful TV companies in the world and. You know, it, it was ahead of all of these, like Netflix and Amazon Prime. They were they were streaming BBC shows on, on a thing called the iPlayer on BBC iPlayer. Yeah, ten ten years before Netflix got into streaming. And also for American listeners, um, the BBC has multiple radio channels. Radio Four it will be streaming all day with a variety of shows, one after the other. And these are not only having acting ensembles that do shows over and over again, but writers who are really good and really well-trained, uh, news commentary and the like. There's BBC One. Is there two and three as well as four? You Just correct me here. There are several radio stations, and it's also it's become a little bit messy in the last couple of years because there's this thing called BBC Sounds, which is like overall in charge of, and they make lots of podcasts as well. So they've got the podcast wing now, but they've got Radio One, which is mostly young people's music, Radio Two, which is sort of slightly older music, sort of uh, AOR kind of show, uh, shows Radio 3, which is very sort of uh, in, intelligent uh, and classical music and things. And then Radio 4, which is like a news programs, but also they just have comedy and drama. Radio 4 right. is like a sort of, you know, mainstream uh, TV channel. And there's always... They still have, like, at 6.30 every uh, Monday to Friday, they have a comedy show, and they have one at 11.30 in the morning as well. So they still make lots of uh, comedy, but they just get cut and cut and cut, and so, you know, they just um, have to play loads of repeats more and more now. Yeah. Well, that's too bad, because I know back, this must be in the 80s too, you started writing for, there's been a lot of comedy news shows in Britain for years, on and off. And this also had an influence on me when I was learning to write comedy for our group here in, in Northern California. But I was thinking, I mean, think of a classic one going way back, BBC, BC, where it was John Cleese, as I recall, was one of the writers of that. But you started working on a show called The News Quiz, comedy about the news. And this has led you in a direction to, so that you've been working on this extremely popular show, which Paul Merton and Ian Hislop. So tell us about your uh, sort of news commentary comedy and how you got started on The News Quiz and how it led you to Have I Got News For You? Yeah, well, again, that was partly um, to do with the uh, the live shows. We did we set up the Comedy Store Players in 1985, and then in 1990, and you mentioned Mark Thomas and Mark and uh, Kevin Day set up uh, a show called The Cutting Edge, which was a, a, like a topical comedy show at the Comedy Store. I'd done a bit of topical comedy writing i'd done spitting image and i'd written for the odd show on radio four but then i became part of this this show the, the cutting edge and then when i sort of stopped doing stand-up and moved more into writing there were lots and lots of topical comedy shows that you could write for and was asked on the basis of various shows that i did i was asked to do the show the news quiz and the news quiz has been running since about 1978 i think it's been really long really long running show and if I got news for you, 
which started in 1990, was just kind of the news quiz on TV. And I didn't, I, I didn't start on that. But Paul, Paul's been doing Have I Got News for You now for uh, I don't know, 30 years almost. I think maybe right, more right, than 30, yeah. 32 yeah. years. That show's been going over hundreds of hundreds of episodes i only wrote for have i got news for you for 12 years <laughs> so uh, <laughs> i'm actually a, like a junior a, a junior member of that team I, I happened to go into the the office there a couple of months ago and the writers who were writing for it they were the same they were the writers who were there when i joined and <laughs> and they've been there for some of them have been there like 20 25 years the same writers writing for that show so i only did 25 series of have i got news for you so i feel like a bit of a bit of a failure on that score because they're up to about series 62 now or something so so uh, yeah there's usually two series a year as i looked yeah. it up i watched one of the um in preparation for the cohen interview oh. i watched <laughs> have i got 30 years for you which was a great documentary about have i got news for you and it was great seeing Paul talk about uh, the overall thing and getting some background again, because I've seen this show, but not that much. And it, it started more after Tracy and I left Britain, uh, and but we left about 1990 and, and so forth. So I hadn't seen that much, but all my friends love the show. There's a certain... You are, um, as I recall, you and I have always talked politics over the years or when we've seen each other. And then usually at Christmas time, we send usually a missive back and forth about some deadly political situation and making light of it. You and I share sort of lefty, progressive-y kind of political points of view. And I think that one of the things is you come at things with an acerbic point of view, and it's fun for you to write about the news. Correct me, yeah. Irma. That, that is true. And actually, uh, that was true, I would say, up until the kind of the dreaded double whammy of late 2016 of uh, Brexit and Trump. And yes, I don't sir. know how it is in uh, in the States now, but it's it's actually, I find it quite hard nowadays to write topical comedy, to be acerbic about the news, because people have become so polarised by it that actually, yeah, I've always been kind of on the left, but I've also always liked to try and be a little bit kind of counterintuitive i've always tried to sort of not be not come at it from the obvious angle but comedy has kind of followed politics now and so there's kind of there's a sort of left-wing comedy and i used to have a line way back even in the 80s and 90s or something i do like a political joke against the the, the right wing and I wouldn't necessarily get a laugh, but I'd get a round of applause. <laughs> and, I'd, yeah. and I'd say, oh, I said, that means uh, that, that, yeah, I got round of applause. That means that you agree with what I say, but it wasn't funny. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, not, yeah. I, I'm, not doing, I'm not doing my job here as a, as a comedian. I'm not here for your applause. I, want, I need your laughs. I'm a needy <laughs> comedy type. But I found since that whole, kind of, and it didn't come out of nowhere, of course. I mean, you know, Trump and Brexit have been a kind of a long time coming, really, haven't they? They didn't just appear yeah. out of nowhere. And yeah. But that kind of the end result of that has been this sort of attitude to politics and not sure... I could work on a show now, not like I get asked, which is which is fine because you know I'm you know in my sixties and there's loads of new young people coming through and they get they get stuff done. But 
I'm not sure if I would have the same sort of freedom that I felt I had in the like in the 1980s and the 90s and even the noughts to to sort of be a little bit out there because now if you're a little bit out there you just get attacked you know you get attacked on yeah. social media you get pe- people who take it all way too seriously now the whole kind of being funny about the news you know what's what's mm-hmm. the problem but in the 1980s we had like margaret thatcher was in power in britain and and spitting image and we just all we did was rip into this tory party and we were, you know, we were we were savage we were cruel but their attitude then was, well, you know, we're in power. What do we care? Yeah, we're the baddies. We're happy for you to to show us as the baddies because we're in power and we can do what the hell we like. I mean, they that bad, you know. But they were that that was the sort of attitude. But now, if you criticise a Tory, I mean, you played the horrible history song there. But you know, I'm getting into trouble for songs on horrible histories just because they're about the British Empire. They're about how. British Empire was taught in British schools, and and I've done a few little songs about where the British Empire saying, hmm, maybe the British Empire wasn't the most perfect empire ever. And, you know, I've had really, you know, kind of quite high up people in media saying, you know, how dare the BBC say this about the British Empire? I mean, for God's sake, it's, you know... It's just sure. a joke. And so, yeah, um, well, there's some honesty involved, too. I taught history and I, I was my major in school and, and yeah. in university. And I love your horrible history songs. We oh, should point you. out for those who have not heard uh, that many. There was a, a books called The Horrible Histories. And then mm. Children's BBC put out a show called The Horrible Histories. And what they do is through through fun and skits and songs they tell about historical events. We started out with Charles II, King of Bling. Charles II became king after Oliver Cromwell was overthrown, the time of the Puritans. And Dave does a song where he makes fun of this sort of party boy atmosphere that has come back. Now, Horrible Histories, you've done a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, we'll end this interview with your version of Rosa Parks' I Sat on the Bus, which, of course, is a big moment in American history and a, a game changer. That's a beautiful song, and it's also really well presented. Horrible Histories, we've got to hear about how much you work for them, the kind of stuff you've done, some of your favorite things yeah. with Horrible Histories. Well, I guess it was kind of... I didn't think of it at the time, but just just sort of think about it now and talking to you now, it was sort of the show that was made for me, for my songs almost, really, because, you know, I'd always done political songs and things, and, they, you know, but they'd always, I'd always gone for funny as well and silly. You know, I've always liked silly jokes like that, you know, Stan Bayerman is just a silly song. And so a kid's TV show that's about serious stuff but you know, we're so uh, told told in a silly way. So I got again, I got lucky with that. I'd been doing a radio show called Fifteen Minute Musical, and uh, that was like a topical uh, news show with songs. So yeah, fifteen fifteen minute long musicals. We did uh, Obama versus Clinton for the Democratic nomination for president. We did that as a kind of like a sort of high school, you know, Greece high school sort of movie musical. So that's the kind of thing that we did, and we do stuff about British comedy as well and British kind of showbiz characters. But so you just have these sort of 
little little stories that were like based on music and we did a westminster side story so you know <laughs> see what i did there you know yeah um, i wanted you know. to just point out there too that i was going to ask you a separate question but just to point out the 15 minute musical is a show on radio four which has been around for 15 17 years and yeah. you uh, typically put together a 15 minute musical say about the, the career of tony blair or you mentioned obama versus clinton the Democratic uh, primary 2008. And then you guys make a, a 15 minute musical and have a huge laugh at someone or uh, a, a system's, um, you know, grievous errors and the like. So that show in and of itself is recommendable. But you also now getting back to horrible histories. Now, how many yeah. have you done for them? Or uh, Well, what happened was we did, we did it, like you say, actually, we did ended up doing about 15 years of 15 minute musicals. We kind of I think we, we sort of ran out of steam on that one. <laughs> that was a good long run that we had of that. But Richie was the music writer. Richie is a ph phenomenally talented musician and comedy. He's perfectly capable of writing funny lyrics himself, but he mostly does music. And so he got asked to write the music, to write the songs for Horrible Histories, and he, he brought me in, and that was in about 2008. And since then, I've written nearly a hundred songs for that show, oh, getting on for tremendous ninety. Yeah. I I don't do it anymore, and again, partly because I started to feel like I was repeating myself and doing. And they also they did a lot. They they do more parodies now. Whereas Richie and I, we love doing kind of generic type songs. We, for instance, a song about Charles Dickens that was kind of. Uh, based on uh, the fact that Charles Dickens was a very miserable person. And so we did him as a sort of like Morrissey from the Smiths. So it's it just a pleasure to do. And it wasn't really, didn't sound like any one Smith's song, but it was had a kind of Smith's feel to it. We did one about these kind of uh, Greek philosophers who were sort of a bit hippie-like. So we did a kind of 60s it was sort of like the monkeys but it, it could have been you know it could have been a number of groups and things i suppose the most of the songs i wrote was between about 2008 2013 so we i got asked to do these songs but the great thing about that show it became a massive hit it was really everybody was completely surprised by it and it wasn't just the kids who were watching it was all the, the adults were watching and i was i had young kids at uh primary school at the time and i i was getting stopped in the playground by the parents saying oh i love that song we're all we're all the biggest fans you know and then they sing the words back to me and things and the really great thing about it as well was on on uh, social media especially on twitter and things you'd get loads and loads of teenage kids saying i always hated history at school but now thanks to horrible histories i'm really interested in it that for me, it's been, you know, if there's one thing that I take away from whatever I've done in, in the last sort of 40 years or so, it, it, to be involved in a show that made something really important, popular for kids that had, they had been turned off before. And I think that's a real, for me, that's kind of thing I'm more proud of, really, than anything else. Yeah. Well, I will say uh, on behalf of teachers, history teachers everywhere, um, that quote you just had there is really what we need for for history generally if i was teaching about civil rights movement i just did a, a high school lecture and i could end on i sat on the bus with rosa parks the kids would walk out of the room singing being happy and it would be extremely memorable so i think you've done a great job with that show 
Thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Doug. Yeah. Yeah. So I will, um, we'll try to include um, some links on the back end of some of the stuff that you've sent on uh, to me. And um, we'll also make sure that they have the Rosa Parks, Charles II, King of Bling, and some of the others uh, linkable at the end of the podcast. So thanks, Dave. So, you know, you've also, um, in the last couple of weeks, in addition to working on this, this novel is out there, is it Barry Goldman? We'll talk about that at the end. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You've also done uh, some books about writing comedy. Now, to me, this is one of those things that's actually kind of hard to do. You have two books out. The Complete Comedy Writer, I love this title, How to Be Averagely Successful at Comedy, and If I Only Had the Time. I wondered if you could talk about the comedy writing books and what it was like writing those. Yeah, I think the first one came about because, um, again, this is back in 2008, there was a website, uh, like a lot of stand-up comedy website in Britain called Chortle, and um, they... It's basically news about comedians in Britain. And they started in 2008, they started doing this uh, correspondence uh, section where comedians could just write articles about stuff. And I read about two or three of them, the, the, the first two or three, and I just thought, I've got so many stories that I could tell from my years of, of, of stand-up that are, uh, uh, as you say, self-deprecation is my kind of or has for many years been my thing, really. And I I just thought I'd quite like to... I think somebody wrote something about an audience, uh, about a sitcom that they saw on TV, and I just and it was so inaccurate what they'd written. I just thought, I've got to set the record straight. I've got to try and explain, you know, what is it about an audience sitcom, that why they don't work so much and things. So I wrote, I wrote something about that. And I think someone also wrote something about some uh, new material. And one of the things that we haven't mentioned was that, um, and I think you did quite a few of these as well, we started these things in the late 1980s. And again, Mark Thomas was at the forefront in this of new material nights. And it was, oh, yeah. we were all, we were doing our 20 minute sets everywhere we went, but we were getting a little bit, frustrated it was hard to try new material there wasn't really there wasn't really a kind of setup and well i don't think we were experienced enough to just go out to clubs and just do a new set a whole new set or a new five minutes or something and so we developed these new material nights and in fact mark and i and jim tabaret and Ivor Dembina, all names that have come up uh so far today are among those who we we set up the first new material night in something about 1988 or something and so i wrote an article about the big how new material night started and about that show so i wrote loads and loads of these articles and was getting these occasional hundred pounds for them so i had you know like a couple of years on i had a dozen articles about comedy and i thought well maybe i should write a book <laughs> Uh, I'd written all these articles um, for Chortle. I thought, well, maybe I can make a book out of these. So I wrote some more articles, uh, including about how to how to write uh, sitcoms and things like that. And it was just a, really a jumble. Uh, how to be averagely successful at comedy was like a a, a massive collection of, of uh, you know, it within it didn't really have a theme or anything so then about five years later i did bring out the complete comedy writer and that felt much more like a book well this is how you write comedy and i'm planning to do a new one actually uh this year so i i i just really enjoy i find that 
the reason I write about writing comedy is totally selfish. It's because whenever I'm writing comedy, I, I always forget there are you know there are rules and rules are there to be broken. But unless I'm always reminding myself of the basics and the things that are re- really matter, I just go off on a tangent. And so writing about comedy is is as much to, te- to teach me <laughs> as it is for other people. Yeah. You know, you also have done this. And I speaking of tangents, I think that you have a podcast about the last five years or so called Sitcom Geeks, which is also about the art of of sitcom writing. And you do this with uh, James Carey. And I think there might even be other people. I believe you've got over 180 episodes. I wonder if you could talk a a bit about Sitcom Geeks. This is sort of an extension, I believe, of your uh, comedy writing books. Yeah, and I mean that's um, James uh, asked me to join him. James is a very successful sitcom writer in Britain, uh, way way more successful than I am. He's had several series on BBC Radio. He had his own series on the BBC TV about three or four years ago. What that was set in a bomb disposal uh, unit in Helmand in Afghanistan, which is amazing, really, and um, that they were able to do that. I mean, you would not be allowed to make a show like that on the BBC now but it was a great and it was a really funny show and in fact uh Mike Machine uh, the, the great Oh yeah Mike Machine sure yeah he was he was a, he played the loud angry american commander with all these sort of posh british people and he got he got killed off in the first 5 minutes which was a brilliant little uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> way they they kind of made it work really they had like Mike Machine playing this character who's so horrible <laughs> um, that, you know, and actually, you know, tragedy strikes, but it's sort of got across the great thing. You know, this is, these are people who are like, it's a life and death. Every day is life and death for these people. And it allows you to have a sort of gallows sense of humor. Anyway, he'd written that show and he's a great, he's a really knowledgeable person about comedy and comedy writing. And again, I've probably learned as much from being, doing this this podcast with just through working with him as 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 anything else really and he's definitely his approach to 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 writing has really kind of very heavily influenced me i would say and uh, he's uh, it's not just about the writing it's about it's about persisting and finishing coming up with an idea and, and seeing it through and that that kind of thing and he's he's really good at that and we've had all sorts of you know we we talk about it's very nerdy show <laughs> You know, we really yeah. we talk about plotting and uh, you know coming up with our ideas and characters and you know there's, there isn't really anything else like it. You think you know there are approximately nine hundred and forty three million podcasts out there. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> you've got um, the American. You've got script notes, which is about writing. You know, writing movies. But there really isn't anything uh, about sitcom writing, and and so it's a very niche, very niche show. But it's it's got a several thousand people tuning in. You know, people who want to be comedy writers so out of the world population of seven billion. You know, yeah, there are there are a few thousand people who think, oh, I could be a comedy writer. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, and also apropos from uh, your mark, there's actually a few thousand people who aren't don't have their own podcast. I'm just teasing myself <laughs> on this. <one> <laughs> so, 
Now, you know, you've, you've done all this work. Uh, the, the Cohen oeuvre is rather vast. Um, it strikes me that um, Horrible Histories might be one of your big highlights. What, name a couple of the big highlights that you would say would be either writing or performing you'd, you'd, you'd have in there. Yeah, well, I think, as I say, that thing about the horrible histories is uh, is one. But funny thing is, uh, we interviewed um, a friend of mine, comedy writer Georgia Pritchett, who's a very, very successful British comedy writer. But she writes for Succession. She wrote the series recently on Apple Podcast, The Shrink Next Door, with uh, uh, Will Ferrell, and um, she's got she had a book out recently, and she writes about. There's this, this sort of moment where she's working on a TV show in Britain with Armando Iannucci and a few other people, and they're all kind of coming up with an idea. And she says, I came up with this idea uh, for a character, for something to say, and I said it out loud, and everybody laughed. And she said, and she, you know, that gets a whole chapter. <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, that's, it's those little things. And I'm sure you have that too, Doug, as well. It's like a, little moments. There'll be like a moment where somebody heckled you and you came back with the perfect reply. And it was like, and the audience went, whoa. And those are the kind of things, I mean, writing a novel has been probably the most kind of satisfying thing that I've ever done. This and is your I'm Barry really, Goldman book about the stand-up. Yeah, and that's been... I, I that that has been a dream since I was a teenager, really, to write a novel. And so, so finally, age age sixty three, age sixty two, I got the book out. You know, so a mere a mere forty years after having the idea, I uh, it um, came out. But um, the things, just just little moments that I remember of just gigs and stuff, and that that those are the things that really kind of have have stuck with me. I think, but yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Dave, um, you've been a great guy. I'm so glad we've stayed in touch over the years. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I stopped gigging with Dave on a regular uh, basis about 30 years ago. Having <laughs> said that, we have always stayed in touch and I've always enjoyed you. And you've uh, you've been married to Miriam for many years and you've raised three kids, Joseph, Leah and Jack. Our Leah and Jack are twins, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, how do they, my final question is, how do they deal with their comedy writing husband or dad? <laughs> well, that's a, a interesting little thing that happened. They're very dismissive. The, the twins were a little bit kind of, oh, horrible histories, you know, oh, God, that's so cringe, <laughs> that sort of thing. But then an uh, interesting thing happened was that, and sort of gradually, grudgingly, they sort of, they sort of told other kids at their school that oh yeah my dad writes the horrible history song and they all go wow wow that's amazing but one day i was uh, uh there's a guy there's a very famous um poet in britain uh a kids poet called uh, michael rosen and uh, all the kids love michael rosen he's an absolute hero to kids and you know he writes loads of poetry and things and i got to meet him and do a bit of work with him a couple of years ago. And my kids who'd been really sneery about uh, horrible history. I said, I said to them, hey, you never guess who I'm going to meet tomorrow. I'm meeting Michael Rosen. And the first time in their lives, they were mm, mm, a little bit impressed. And I met Michael. And the first thing that he said to me was, oh, God. He said, oh, yeah, I know you. You wrote that Charles II song, didn't you? He said, my kids, we listen, we watch your horrible histories and we hear your songs. And my kids say to me, Dad, you just write poems. Why can't you write songs like that, Dave Cohen? 
And so <laughs> I just thought, yeah. oh, wow, you know, this is so, you know, Michael Rosen is as, yeah. you know, uh, you know, the, you know his, his own kids are, are as kind of uh, weary of him as my own kids are weary of me. And I think it's great because it just sort of keeps your feet on the ground, really. Yeah. Well, on that note, you are a guy who's kept his feet on the ground. Uh, you've stayed a very wonderful and kind-hearted person. And you're also the writing writer of biting comedy. And uh, you've held politicians to the fire. You've made you've teased people and you've done a lot of really wonderful things over a career that's uh, now 37 or so years uh, along. So, Dave Cohen, it's great to have you on the Snap Sessions, and we're hugely happy to have had you here. Well, Doug, it's been a pleasure chatting to you and catching up, and actually, I recognize the room, even that you're in, because I came, I remember coming to visit you uh, over yes. in uh, Mendocino many yes, years you're ago. Always, you're always welcome to come back, Dave. Bring the kids, bring Miriam, and we'll have a few laughs together. Yeah, so We will. Thank I'd you. Love to. Thanks very much, Dave Cohen. Thank you. I'm Rosa Parks, my story marks the first step towards civil rights Racial inequality, American policy, till I kicked off a fight What act am I, let havoc to ensue, how come I'll cause such fuss? What shocking behavior did I do? Well, I sat on a bus You sat on a bus you sat on a bus. You wanna know why? I sat on that bus. The 50s bus is divided. Whites in front, blacks behind. The bus filled up. We had to give up our seats or we'd be fine. I made a stand in my hometown, Montgomery, Alabama. Refused to stand for a white man, so they put me in the slammer. They stayed off the bus. We stayed off the bus. P-E-C-T, enforce new legislation. Dreamed of the day the USA had no implementation of S-E-G-R-E-G-A-T-I-O-S. Spell segregation. From that day on, we walked or cat led by Martin Luther King. Attacked by mobs, our houses bombed, though peace was our thing. Our plot, it made the national news, which was mighty strange. Mysterious. When Oh, <laughs>
thanks to our artist of the show, English comedian and comedy writer, Dave Cohen. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack-of-all-trades Ken Krause, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer, Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.